1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse number 5, the Word of God says, Now I will come unto you. This is Paul speaking. And of course, he's writing to the church at Corinth. And he says, Now I will come unto you when I shall pass through Macedonia. Corinth, of course, was in Macedonia. For I do pass through Macedonia. And it may be that I will abide, yea, in winter with you, that you may bring me on my journey whithersoever I go. For I will not see you now by the way, but I trust to tarry a while with you if the Lord permit. But I will tarry at Ephesus until Pentecost. For a great door and effectual is open unto me, and there are many adversaries. Let's pray together. Father, we love you tonight. What a blessing to be in your house. I pray that you bless your word. Lord, there's much in my life uh, that a holy God couldn't bless, couldn't endorse, couldn't sanction. But Lord, I'm not asking you to bless me tonight. I'm asking you to bless your word and to use it in the hearts of your people that you might do a work that would be for your glory. Lord, we love you, and we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. While we'll spend a few moments talking about all of the verses that we read a moment ago, it is really verse number 9 that I want to draw our attention to. Paul says this, that he's going to tarry at Ephesus. He's going to stay there and minister and labor until Pentecost. And this is why. He says, for a great door and effectual is open unto me. And there are many adversaries. Paul here is using terminology that we often use today when he talk, we talk about opportunities before us. He calls this season in his life an open door to do something for God. Paul uses this terminology on three separate occasions, and we'll look at each of them tonight. The first we've read here in our text. The next is in 2 Corinthians chapter number 2, when he makes this statement. Verse number 12, furthermore, when I came to Troas to preach Christ's gospel, a door was opened unto me of the Lord. A third and final time he uses this terminology in Colossians chapter number 4. And he speaks about a door that he desires to be opened. He says in verse 3, with all praying also for us that God would open unto us a door of utterance to speak the mystery of Christ for which I am also in bonds. Now, it's interesting when you think about this terminology that Paul used. Paul poured his entire life into the ministry of the gospel. Uh, Paul did not compartmentalize his life. And while I think it is not only acceptable but appropriate to recognize that there are, are moments in time in our life to be investing in what we might call corporate or public ministry, in other words, endeavoring like many of us did last week at church camp, like uh, many of us will do here in a few weeks at Vacation Bible School, we also understand it's appropriate and acceptable and needful for there to be times of rest, uh, times of uh, relaxation and recharging uh, and uh, refueling in our soul and our spirit before the Lord. I do find it interesting that Paul did not compartmentalize his life into these little pockets and say, almost like some people are when they're eating food on a plate, the peas and the potatoes can't touch. The carrots and the turkey can't touch. I have these little areas of my life in which I'm doing something and I have separated and segregated them away so that the one shall never touch the other. Paul rather looked at his entire life as a vessel to be poured out in the service of God. And he spent the entirety of his life after he was born again consistently looking for opportunities to do something for God. I found that people that do not look for opportunities to serve God seldom find any. I found that people that are looking for opportunities to serve God will often find many. In other words, people that are willing to do whatever God will let them do in whatever uh, place they are in in life, even if it may not be what they've envisioned, what they've longed for, but they say, this is the door that's open to me. I will step through it. I will serve God. Those people stay busy for the Lord. 
And very often those people have larger doors, more grand doors open unto them as opposed to the people that are always waiting for everything to be just so before they'll step in and do something for the Lord. I've met people, known people in years of pastoring, and uh, you probably have in years of going to church, that were always getting ready to do something for God. You ever known anybody like that? There's always getting ready, Brother Ken, to do something for God. And just as soon as this happened, or as soon as that happened, they were going to just pick up and do something for God. And in my observation, most of those people, their circumstances never pass their standards. And they wind up forever sitting on their hands, never doing anything for God, as opposed to saying, I'm going to get busy for God right now, right here, where I am in this moment, and do something for the Lord. In other words, when Paul's talking about serving God, he views ministry as open doors that God has set before you. Not just do I want to or don't I want to, but an opportunity set in his path, laid in his lap, that he is either going to seize or he is either going to miss And he treats it as though it is incumbent upon him to take that opportunity and do something for God. He is walking through every open door that God provides for him. Now, when we use that term open door, what does Paul mean by it? And what can we learn from that terminology? There could have been a myriad of different illustrations, sort of word pictures Paul could have used. He could have said that, you know, a way is made. He could he could have said, you know, a, a service is set before me. But he said an open door. What does he mean by that? Well, let me say a few things about it. Number one, when we talk about an open, uh, an open door in serving God, what we're really talking about is a chance to serve God. Now, the word chance can be used in a couple different ways. It can be used for something that is left up to the world's idea is randomness or or uh, whatever it might be. But when we talk about a chance, we're talking about an opportunity. And Paul says, I am praying that God would give me an opportunity to serve him. Can I ask you this? Are you praying and seeking for an opportunity to serve God? Not just waiting until God chases you down, but rather saying, Lord, here I am. I'm available for you. If you need me to do anything, I am looking. I'm taking orders, God. I am open for business. I desire to do something for you. Paul looks at it and he says, you know what? God has given us a chance to do something for him in these days that we're living in. We were talking in Sunday school and Miss Diane was asking prayer requests and she always prays for new movers every single week. And and she mentioned about how that in New Movers, they have started running across a lot of Roman Catholics. That's no surprise, because people in a lot of northern states and a lot of deep blue states are fleeing the chaos and, and uh, disintegration of civilization that's going on in their cities. And they're going to places like East Tennessee. We've got mountains and we got lakes and we got low taxes and things like that. And uh, so they're they're flooding into these places. And very often they are bringing what is their concept of who God is with them that they've been raised with. And you know and I know that Roman Catholics, though there's, uh, of course, more Catholicism than I wish there was here in East Tennessee, it is in a lot of northern states and western states that the Roman Catholic Church still holds great influence in those places. And, you know, just in my flesh, I'll be honest with you, in my flesh, I mean, I want Tennessee to be Tennessee. I, I do, man. I don't want you to California my Tennessee, all right? I, I, I don't want, I don't want you to Detroit, my Tennessee, alright? I don't want you to Philadelphia, my Tennessee. I, I don't want you to Baltimore, my Tennessee. I mean, I want Tennessee to be my Tennessee, you know? But let me say this, we can either look at that as something that unsettles our hearts and that we look at it and say, well man, this is gonna change everything and what is this gonna do? Or we can look at it and say, hey, what an open door. 
I mean, to take people that otherwise would probably never be within 200 miles of a Bible-believing church, but have moved to this place, have come to where we are, and we can go and share the gospel. We don't even have to drive across the country to do it. We can drive across town and find people that have never heard a clear presentation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In other words, our perspective on how we face things in our life, we either look at it as something that is a burden foisted upon us, or we say, man, this is an open door. This is a chance for us to do something for God. So an open door is a chance. Number two, I would say this. An open door is a challenge. If you go to someone's house and knock on their door, particularly in this day that we live in, where people are so wary of strangers, very often the conversation you have, you won't even have face-to-face. You'll have it through an electronic doorbell, or you'll have it just shouting through the other side of the door. But it has always been understood that if a person opens their door, and particularly if they then stand aside, They are inviting you to come into their house. An open door is a challenge to go through that door. I would say this, uh, when God gives us an open door, and I want to be very careful what I say here. I I do believe the devil can put an oasis in front of us. I do believe the devil can lure us away and tempt us away. But I would say if God has given us an open door, and we know and understand it and believe it to be from God, that ought to be enough to recognize that God has given us this opportunity because He desires for us to go through this open door. Now again, you can, in your own self-deception and delusion, you can turn anything into something God has done. And it is your responsibility and my responsibility to make sure that if we say God's in something, God's really in something. Because we'll pay the price for telling ourselves that lie if it's not true. But we need to understand that when God does give us an open door, He is challenging us. He is inviting us to go through and do something for Him. In other words, it's not to be viewed with neutrality. It's not to be viewed with, well, you know, I could do this for God and nobody's doing it for God and and I know God wants me to do it for Him, but I'm still going to pray about it and make sure. If God has opened that door, that is a challenge for us to go through it. I would say, number three, an open door is a charge. Particularly when a person that is likewise on the outside opens the door for us. I do this. I, I, I don't do it always. I should do it more, but you probably do occasionally too. You ever been walking out of a grocery store, gas station, bank, whatever it is, and you see someone else walking in and you open the door and you hold the door open for you. And what you are doing is you are saying, I have opened this for you because I anticipate you walking through the door. Not very often, but there have been times in my life when somebody's took that the wrong way. Some people just looking for something to be upset about. And, uh, you know, looked at it like they don't need me to hold a door for them or whatever it is. But down here in the South, most of the time people are pretty friendly, pretty respectful and appreciative of that. But when you open a door for someone, here's the thing. I'm not going to let go of that door till they walk through it. It is their responsibility. I can open the door for them, but it is their responsibility to walk through that door. Now you say, preacher, what if they won't go through it? I'll get mad and slam it, and storm off and huff at them. But I'm holding that door open. And I have done my part. Are you listening? I have done my part. And now they have a responsibility to walk through that door. I would say this, that an open door is a chance and it's a challenge. But number three, an open door is a charge. It gives us a responsibility to walk through that door. We cannot claim we do not have an open door when God's made the door open for us. Now, sometimes we would desire for something to be different or better. We wish God would hold the door differently or better, whatever it might be. But understand that God has done His part in opening the door for us, and now it is our responsibility to walk through it. And then number four, I would say this, an open door is not only a chance and a challenge and a charge, but an open door is a choice. 
Every time a door is open before us, we have a choice we have to make. Are we going to go through it or are we not going to go through it? Now, some would say, well, preacher, I'm not ready to make the choice. But the very fact that God's not going to stand and hold that door open forever tells you and I that we have a choice that must be made. I jotted down three statements here. This isn't even really a point. This is just I just want you to understand what I'm about to preach on. But I wrote down these three statements. Indecision is a decision. Inaction is an action. Non-commitment is a commitment. When an open door is set before us, if we choose to twiddle our thumbs and say, well, I'll just, you know, make up my mind later. What we're really saying is, no, thank you, God. You can go ahead and close the door back. So when Paul talks about this open door to serve God, that's what he's talking about. A chance, an opportunity to do something for God. A challenge from God to him to go through it, to do something for God. God is throwing down the gauntlet and saying, I'm ready for you. It is time for you to do something for me. It is a charge. It is a responsibility. We're going to answer for the open doors that God gives us. And it is a choice that we must make. So what can we learn about the three instances that Paul speaks about an open door? Well, I've sort of described them this way. In our text, we see an open door bestowed. In the next uh, example, in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, we see an open door blown. In other words, he blows the opportunity. And then finally, in the book of Colossians, we see an open door begged for. And we will find that in our lives, most of us, we're to be honest, we are going to face all three of these instances. And we need to recognize both the dangers and the potential that live within each of these situations. First off, I want you to notice with me tonight an open door bestowed. Let's read our text again. It's only about four or five verses. Paul is describing, at, at the time that he writes the letter to the church at Corinth, he is in Ephesus. Now you can read in Acts 18 and 19 and 20, and you can read about the ministry in Ephesus. When he uses the terminology, a great door and effectual, he was not exaggerating. God did a monumental work in the town of Ephesus. God literally struck down their idols. God literally put their paganism out of business. God literally set on fire their idolatry. And God planted what is, I think debatably, the most healthy, the most deep, the most powerful, the most effective of any New Testament church that is described before us. And that's the church at Ephesus. When you read the book of Ephesians, there is a greater depth of spiritual truth that is sounded than any other Pauline epistle. And that betrays the fact, that that speaks to us of the great work that Paul spent three years in Ephesus plowing and planting and harvesting and nurturing and building the work of God there. But you know that great vast work of God? It didn't begin in one moment. It began with a man who looked and saw an open door. It did not, if you were, in other words, Paul, when he preaches and when he talks to us in the book of Ephesians, the Holy Ghost uh, unveils before us the idea of the church as a building. Talks about being a building fitly framed together, chapter number two. And the reason that he used that terminology was because there in Ephesus, uh, the worship of Diana, the Ephesian god, uh, was the uh, chief uh, commerce and the chief cultural force in that place. And they had a great temple that was built there. And Paul, in looking at that pagan temple that was built there, he chooses to use that almost as an example by contrast to the building that God has built in the New Testament church. 
And he talks about how that you have grown up in the shadow of this great glorious temple that you are awestruck by. But you know that being a born again believer saved by the grace of God, you're part of a greater building whose foundation is the holy apostles and Jesus Christ himself is the chief cornerstone and all the stones are fitly framed together and built together under the glory of God. You're the temple of God. But you know, if you were to be able with spiritual eyes to view that grand spiritual edifice, that great building of the church of Ephesus, spiritually speaking, it did not begin with a foundation. It did not begin with rafters. It did not begin with drapes and tapestries and glorious adornments. It began with an open door. It began when Paul said, hey, God can do something here. And when we're seeking an open door, what we're really desiring to see is where God can do something. It's not a question of where we can do something. It's a question of where God is able and is desirous of doing something. Listen to what he says. Now I will come unto you, talking to the church of Corinth, when I shall pass through Macedonia. For I do pass through Macedonia. And it may be that I will abide, yea, in winter with you, that you may bring me on my journey whithersoever I go. For I will not see you now, by the way, but I trust to tarry with you uh, a while with you, if the Lord permit. He's saying, I'm going to come, I'm going to visit you. When I do, I want to spend some time with you. I love you. But he says, right now, I can't come. And here's why. He says, I will tarry at Ephesus until Pentecost. For a great door and effectual is open unto me, and there are many adversaries. He says, I would love to go and visit you right now, but right now I can't because God's given me an opportunity to do something. He has prioritized the open door that God has set before him. He has not, and I don't mean this irreverently, but it's a, it's a turn of phrase that you understand in talking about the Lord. He's not looked to gift horse in the mouth. He's not begged God for an open door and God's opened the door for him and now he looks back and says, I don't like that open door. I'm going to go do something else. Instead, he says, God's given me an opportunity and I'm going to take it. Let me say it this way. Number one, we see that Paul saw the open door. He was vigilant to look for an opportunity to do something for God. If we're not looking for an opportunity, well, chance, chances are we will not find an opportunity. The people that do things for God are the people that are looking for an opportunity to do something for God. And Paul says, there is an opportunity here. God is moving. God is working. I don't know the extent to what God will do, but I see God has a desire to do something in Ephesus. And he says, because of that, I'm not going anywhere. I'm staying right where God has put me. Not only did he see the open door, but number two, Paul surveyed the open door. Notice how he describes it there in verse 9. He says, a great door and effectual is open unto me. He looks it up and down and he sees the opportunity that he faced. He says, you know, this is a place of deep rank paganism. A place where the idolatry is woven into the cultural fabric of these people. But the fact that there is such a dark stain of idolatry here only gives greater opportunity for the light of the gospel to shine all the brighter in this place. I remember hearing somebody say years ago, and I probably heard half a dozen different evangelists this story told with them. So I really don't know who was the first person to ever say it and do it. But I've heard of old time evangelists saying that when they go into a town and when they set up a tent or when they go into a town and they'd hold a meeting, the first thing they do is they go find the most rotten, wicked, meanest sinner around and try to win them to Christ. And I've heard it told again, different with Oliver Green and, and, and different uh, evangelists, old time evangelists, how they do it. But they would always say this, I knew if I could win them to Christ, revival would spread through the community. Because people would say, if God can do it in their life, He can do it in my life. If He can save them, He can save my kids. If He can save them, He can save my spouse. Now, there's a principle there. A principle that is biblical in its essence and basis. 
And that is this, that God's people don't run from difficult opportunities. We run to them. We don't look at it and say, boy, it's, it's going to be a hard thing to do a work in Ephesus. Paul said, hey, the harder the work, the sweeter the fruit will be. If it is this difficult, then what we really see is not just a great obstacle, we see a great opportunity. He said, there's no telling what God can do here if we'll yield ourselves unto Him. He calls it a great door and effectual. But then notice what he says after that. He said, and there are many adversaries. So when he's surveying this open door, when he's considering what it means, and let me say in our lives, when God gives us opportunity to do something for Him, there should be two things that we soberly consider. The first is the opportunity that we face. Can God do something here? Is God desiring to do something here? And then the second thing is the opposition that he faced. He says there are many adversaries. Paul did not wear rose-colored glasses regarding the difficulty in the open door before him. He said, I recognize later on he would call those same people that would rise up in the church at Ephesus, he called them grievous wolves that desired to tear the flock of God to lay waste to. And when you read the history in the book of Acts of the church at Ephesus, it is literally born in the fire. I mean, it is birthed in hostility and opposition. The, the, the revival, uh, the work of God, the great salvation that takes place in Ephesus, it literally takes place within the context of a great uproar, of a public riot that takes place, and men seeking to kill Paul and his companions. He recognized that any work of God will face opposition. We very often, you know, I remember hearing a, uh, a, a quote years ago, and I think it was by, by Corey Tin Boom, but she said, don't ever doubt in the dark what you know in the light. We all know sitting here today that if we're going to do something for God, we're going to face opposition doing it. We all understand it might be external opposition of our foes. It might be internal opposition of our flesh. It might be proximate uh, opposition of our friends. But we all understand we're going to face opposition. And yet then in that moment when the opposition comes, we very often forget in the dark what we knew in the light. And we're just, I mean, we're just stunned by what we're facing. But Paul, he had sober eyes about this. And he said, I know it's not going to be easy. I know there's going to be people trying to stop. I understand the difficulty. I know my flesh is going to detest what I'm doing. There are many adversaries. But listen, if they're fighting so hard to block the door, there must be something awful good on the other side. If the devil's fighting so hard to keep you from it, there must be something awful good on the other side of it. So we see that Paul saw the open door and Paul surveyed the open door. But then we can tell this from the book of Acts. We note that Paul sees the open door. Here he is describing prospectively. He's saying, I can't come to you. I'd love to come to you, but I can't because God's doing something here and I'm here till God leaves. We can read in the book of Acts and we can see how he poured himself in. He said that uh, night and day with tears and much prayers he had labored amongst the church at Ephesus. In other words, Paul said, listen, I, I, didn't, I didn't leave nothing in the back room when I was done at Ephesus. I gave everything to the work of God there. Like you take a dish rag and wring it out until there's nothing left. Paul said, I have wrung out my life into this body of believers. That's what I want to do with those open doors that God gives me. I don't want to look back on my life and say, boy, that was a great opportunity that I just walked right by. I could have done something for God, but because it wasn't how I was expecting it, it wasn't how I was anticipating it, because there was some opposition, because there were some people that didn't like it, I just walked right by it and didn't let God do something. I want it to be said of my life. And if I'm to be honest, if a person was to scrutinize my life, it already could not be said that Toby walked through every door God opened for him. But I want from this day forward, 
I want it to be said of my life and my testimony. He seized every open door God gave him. He didn't leave anything on the table. So I see an open door bestowed. That's wonderful. That's what I want for my life. I bet it's what you want for your life. But you know, the story doesn't always go that way. In fact, turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. It'll probably be one or two pages for you in your Bible. Uh, and listen to what Paul says about another open door that God gave. Now, and I've backed up my reading a little bit because I wanted to scoop up a statement that Paul's, Paul makes because I don't think, I don't think it is unrelated to what he says about this open door. He says in chapter 2, verse 10, To whom ye forgive anything, I forgive also. For if I forgave anything, to whom I forgave it, for your sakes forgave I it in the person of Christ. Lest Satan should get an advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. Now, let's stop right there. We've not read the, the entirety. That first statement, lest Satan should get an advantage of us, I think that's tethered to what he said in verse number 10. He's saying, I've determined that bitterness ain't going to live in my heart. I'm just going to forgive people uh, even when it's tough, even when I don't feel it. I'm going to forgive it to them in the person of Christ by faith. He says, and here's why, because I don't want Satan to get an advantage of us. Then he says, we are not ignorant of his devices. We've seen how Satan works. Verse 12 says, furthermore. Now that word furthermore, that yokes that to that phrase prior to. He's saying, in other words, I'm talking about something. And now I'm going to go more further in talking. I'm going to go beyond that. I'm going to amplify and expand upon that. Furthermore, he says, when I came to Troas to preach Christ's gospel and a door was opened unto me of the Lord, I had no rest in my spirit because I found not Titus, my brother. But taking my leave of them, I went from thence into Macedonia. He says of Ephesus, God has opened a door, great door and effectual. And we can read the history and see that God, that Paul, he sees that open door. But we find here that he squandered this open door. He says, if I'm to be honest, God wanted to do in Troas what he did in Ephesus. The same God that opened the door in Ephesus opened the door in Troas. But he says the problem is when he opened it, I didn't walk through it. Why was that? Well, he gives this reason. He says when he got there, he didn't find Titus, his brother. And now when we read the context here, we find there's a little more than just he liked Titus and Titus wasn't around. And he said, if Titus ain't here, I'm going to take my ball and go home. Rather, Paul had sent Titus to investigate the condition of the church of Corinth. This, by the way, is why Paul's writing this to the church of Corinth. He's wanting them to understand that he loves them, that he cares about them, that he's been praying for them. Remember, that first epistle of Corinthians was really rough on them. I mean, he had laid the woodshed to them. He had laid the leather to them. He had, he had told them how they need to deal with this brother that was in sin, how they needed to, to, to scourge themselves and purify themselves for God and get the church right with God. When he writes the second epistle of Corinthians, what he's doing is saying, now I want you to know, even though I had to give you a spiritual whipping, it hurt me more than it hurt you. He's saying, I want you to know I love you. I'm not mad at you. I had to do that. It was necessary. God used it. But I do indeed love you. And I intend on restoration and moving beyond this and seeing God do great things in your life. And to that end, he is telling them how greatly his concern of them had affected. And so essentially he's saying, I got to Troas and God had given me a great opportunity, an open door to preach the gospel. But I was so troubled because Titus was supposed to meet me there. He was supposed to go to Corinth, 
find out how you were doing, minister among you, and me and him were supposed to rendezvous in Troas, and he was going to tell me how you all were doing. And, and, and when I got there, he wasn't there. And it, it got in my head and it worked on me. He said, I started to worry. He said, I had no rest in my spirit. And instead of yielding to God and letting God have my fears and my anxieties, he said, instead, I let him get victory over me. And I went and I left. And when he says, I went from thence into Macedonia, remember where Macedonia is, right? That's where the church at Corinth is. That's why in chapter 16 of the first epistle, uh, epistle of Corinth, he's saying, I can't come to Macedonia and see you right now, but I will later. Well, he says, I left Troas and went back to Macedonia because I was worried about you all and I was worried about Titus. In other words, he has this great opportunity, but he blows it. How does that happen? Well, I would note three things very quickly. Number one, I would say this. Fear caused distraction that led him to missing that open door. Paul let his fear over the fate of Titus and the believers at Corinth distract him from the opportunity God had placed before him. In fact, both Titus and the Corinthians were safe and secure. Listen to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians down in verse number 7. He says this, For when we were coming to Macedonia where the church at Corinth is, our flesh had no rest, but we were troubled on every side. Without were fighting, within were fears. Nevertheless, God that comforted those that are cast down, comforted us by the coming of Titus. Let me just pause there and make this statement. He thought he'd feel better when he got to Corinth, but he didn't feel better. He thought his, his fear and his anxiety and his worry would leave him when he just saw that the, the, the Corinthian believers, that everything was okay, then he'd turn around and go back to Troas and seize that open door. He just got to go handle this. You know what he found? He found everything, spiritually speaking, on fire when he got into Macedonia. He found out that there was battles, there was obstacles, there were things he had to face while he was there. And he says, you know, I, we maybe say it this way, I jumped out of the frying pan and into the fire. We oftentimes think when God gives us an open door, I can't do it because I have these greater priorities in life and I've got to focus on those first. And we think this, I'll take care of that and then I'll come back and walk through this open door. But you know what you'll find? When you go to take care of those things and they're all took care of, there'll be something else to take care of. And there'll be something else to take care of. And there'll be something else to take care of. And you say, well, preacher, when will life's problems cut me loose? About the time that door slams shut. The devil will keep you busy until there's no more opportunity. And then he'll turn you loose. That way you can go back and stand at that closed door and grieve over the missed opportunity. But notice what he says. Nevertheless, God, that comforteth those that are cast down, comforted us by the coming of Titus. And not by his coming only, but by the consolation wherewith he was comforted in you. When he told us your earnest desire, your mourning, your fervent mind toward me, so that I rejoice the more. So here's Paul, and he picks up and runs off from Troas when God's given him, given him an opportunity because he thinks that Titus is dead, the church at Corinth, everybody's been locked up, everything's fallen all to pieces. When he gets there, you know what he finds? There's too much work for him to walk away from, but basically, everybody's okay. His fears, listen to me, were unfounded. They were a distraction given him by the devil to try to lure him away from the work of God and the opportunity of God just long enough for that open door to close and not be open. Uh, in, in your life and mine, we often let things distract us away from the work of God. And fear is one of the big things. We say, well, if I do this for God, what's going to happen? This is going to happen. That's going to happen. This is going to happen. That's going to happen. Don't you think the God that opened the door knows that? Don't you think the God that opened the door knows you better than you know you? Knows the future better than you know the future? I got news for you. God knows the future and the devil don't. 
The devil is not omniscient. He don't know any more about your future than you know about your future. The only person that knows what's about to happen is God. So you can trust Him. And if He opens that door, you say, Preacher, everything might go wrong. Yeah, but everything might go right too. You say, but preacher, everything could fall apart. Yeah, or God could do a great work. And who would know? Only God would. So if you're following Him through that open door, I guess God knows what's best. Don't you reckon so? I believe that He does. Fear caused distraction. I would say number two, this is a possibility as well. In Paul's language, he says, I had no rest in my spirit because I found not Titus my brother. And then he turns around and leaves. It is almost as though Paul feels unequipped for the work at Troas without Titus there. I'm going to read a passage here in a moment about Paul's high regard of Titus. But Paul seemed discouraged that that Titus was not at Troas. Perhaps he was disheartened, felt inadequate for the work there, and consequently let an opportunity pass him by. We oftentimes, God will give us an open door and we'll say, I'm not ready for that. I'm not ready for that. You know, that's what Moses said. Don't you remember that? There was a time in Moses' life when he thought he was ready and he wasn't. That was when he was 40 years old. And he was ready to seize the reins of the children of Israel by means of, uh, of militaristic, uh, you know, martial revolution. And God said, uh-uh, that ain't how I'm going to do it. I'm not going to do it by your hand, Moses. I'm going to do it by my hand. Moses spends 40 years on the backside of the desert and God shows up to him in a burning bush and says, all right, Moses, it's time. And now Moses says, I'm not ready. Now, wait a minute. 40-year-old Moses thought he was ready when he wasn't. 80-year-old Moses is ready, but he's not ready to cope with that. And God begins to work patiently with him and bring him to a place of confidence in the Lord. But here's what I'm saying. Oftentimes we let frustration cause discouragement that, that cows us away from the opportunity that God set before us. We say, I'm just not able to do it. There's no way. Well, don't you think God would know that? The God that opened the door before you. Don't you believe he would know that? Isn't that what he told Moses? Moses said, Lord, I'm, I'm slow of speech. I, I can't do this. I can't speak well. And God said, who made your mouth, Moses? I did. Who made your tongue, Moses? I did. I know what you're capable of, Moses. And beyond that, Moses, I know what I'm capable of. So go ahead and trust me and go through this open door. And then number three, I would say this. Paul held Titus in such high regard that perhaps he believed that the ministry at Troas had better wait for Titus's assistance. Now, I want to read this to you. It's, it, it's just a few verses. It's a little bit lengthy, but listen carefully. I'll read quick. You'll listen quick. Listen how he describes Titus in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. He says this in verse 16, But thanks be to God, which put the same earnest care into the heart of Titus for you. For indeed, he accepted the exhortation. But being more forward, of his own accord he went unto you. And we have sent with him the brother, whose praise is in the gospel throughout all the churches. When he's speaking of the brother, he's speaking of Titus generically. He's saying, when we sent to, uh, Titus to you, this is who we sent to you. This is the type of person we sent to you. We sent to you the brother whose praise is in the gospel throughout all the churches. And not only that, but who was also chosen of the churches to travel with us with this grace which is administered by us to the glory of the same Lord and declaration of your ready mind. Avoiding this, that no man should blame us in this abundance which is administered by us, providing for honest things not only in the sight of the Lord, but also in the sight of men. And we have sent with them our brother, whom we have oftentimes proved diligent in many things, but now much more diligent upon the great confidence which I have in you. Whether any do inquire of Titus, 
He is my partner and fellow helper concerning you. Or our brethren be inquired of, they are the messengers of the churches and the glory of Christ. He's saying, you want to know who we sent to you? We sent you the man that has a testimony of the gospel throughout all the churches. We sent unto you the man that all the churches gathered together and said, this is the helper of Paul. You want to know who I sent to you? Paul says, I sent you my own right hand when I sent you Titus. That's what he thought of Titus. He gets Troas. And you may disagree with what I'm about to say, but I think he looked around and he said, I can't do this without Titus. He looked around and he said this, wouldn't it be better if we just waited on Titus to get here? But when he goes to Macedonia and finds Titus, they don't turn around and go back to Troas. That door is closed before him. I would say it this way. Listen, fear caused distraction and that caused him to pass an open door. Frustration caused discouragement and that caused him to pass an open door. But is it possible that fantasy caused delay and that caused him to walk past an open door? I would say it this way. We often pass an open door of opportunity because we are waiting for the perfect set of circumstances or conditions. He's saying, wouldn't it be so much better if I could just wait and bring Titus with me? And then everything would be just right. Here's the only problem. The door wasn't open when Titus was there. It was open when Paul was on his own. By the time he finds Titus, the door is closed. The opportunity has gone. We'll say, well, I'll serve God, but only when everything's just right. Or sometimes we'll say it this way. If this person would get right. Hey, listen, I'm, I'm preaching to pastor tonight, man. You understand that for 10 years, you know, you're laboring, you're pouring into ministry. And there is a great deception. There is a mirage that, that most pastors battle with. I've battled with it. Where you're always thinking, if I could just get this kind of person, the ministry would really take off. That's part of the reason you'll see churches that will unrealistically pour tons of money into bringing staff members in because they're hoping for the secret sauce. They're thinking, if I got the right associate pastor, this place really take off. If I got the right song leader, this place really take off. If I got the right piano player, this place really take off. But you know what they find? They get all those people and it doesn't change anything. You know why? Because it's not the associate. It's not the music minister. It's not the youth pastor. It's not the piano player. Hey, it ain't even the pastor. It's God that giveth the increase. And there ain't no secret sauce. There ain't no special code. There ain't no hack to it. We look for an opportunity to do something for God and God will make of it what He sees fit that gives Him glory. Fantasy caused delay. Well, finally, and I'll be done tonight. I'm not even really going to preach it. I'm just going to mention it. We see not only an open door bestowed and an open door blown, but in Colossians chapter 4, we see an open door begged for. Can I remind you that Paul is a free man as far as the law is concerned, whenever he writes those first two statements. Colossians 4, he writes from a prison cell. And he says this, chapter 4, verse 2, Continue in prayer and watch in the same with thanksgiving, with all praying also for us, that God would open unto us a door of utterance to speak the mystery of Christ, for which I am also in bonds, that I may make it manifest as I ought to speak. Now, can I just make this observation? Isn't it interesting? When you get behind bars, you appreciate open doors. When you spend every day of your life staring at closed doors, it makes you value the ones that are open. Paul wished he'd go out to Troas. He would have given anything in the world if he could have got free and got to go back and do what God wanted him to do at Troas. But now he's sitting there staring at a Roman prison door and realizing that there are some doors that don't get opened again. So he begins to ask the believers at Colossae, he says, pray for us. 
that in some way God would open a door for us to do something for Him. Now, when he begged God for this open door, notice these thoughts and I'll be done. Notice, number one, the coordinator of our open doors. He says that God would open unto us a door of utterance. He does not say pray that God would bless the doors that we open. He says pray that God would open the door. He doesn't say we're working at getting an open door in this place and you just pray that God will help us get that door open. He says pray that God would open a door. He doesn't say pray that God would open a door in this place or open a door in that place. He says just pray that God would open a door. And whatever door God opens... That'll be good enough for me. That sounds like a man that don't have many open doors and he's learned to value them. I would say this. God is the one that opens doors for us. I've opened a few in my time and there's always been nothing behind it but heartache. I have. I've kicked them open. I've pried them open. I've blown them open. And it's always led to my heartache and my misery. But I've found that the best things in life are behind the doors that God opens. And if I let him be the one that opens them and I'll be responsible to walk through when he does, those are the doors that are not just great doors, but effectual. I see the coordinator of our open doors. Number two, I see the context of our open doors. I like this. Uh, He says this, for which I am also in bonds. Paul did not pray for an open door withstanding his afflictions. He prayed for an open door within his afflictions. He did not say, God, get me out of prison and then I can do something for you. He said, God, use me in prison if that's where you want me to be. He said, in the midst of my circumstances, open doors for me and I'll go through them and I'll be used for you. You know, by the way, later on when he writes the church of Philippi, he talks about the church that is in Caesar's household, Brother Ken. You remember that? He talks about how his bonds are made manifest throughout all the palaces everywhere. And then he talks about the church that is in Caesar's household. Sound to me like Paul found an open door behind the closed doors of Rome. God made a way even in the midst of an undesirable situation. Notice number three, the calling of our open doors. He says, what, what, is, what is this open door going to look like? Well, to speak the mystery of Christ. He goes on to say that I may make it manifest. What does an open door look like? Does it look like, and I'll just preach to me for a millisecond, does it look like bigger properties? Does it look like bigger names? Does it look like greater facilities? Does it look like larger numbers? Is Is that what an open door looks like? There's a lot of guys that think that's what open doors are in ministry. What does an open door look like for you? Does it look like financial freedom? Does it look like, you know, greater position and power? Is that what an open door looks like? No. You say, preacher, don't some of those things happen to people that God uses? I guess, I suppose. But what is it that it looks like when God uses a man? Well, they speak the mystery of Christ. Now, what's the mystery of Christ? We get into a big dispensational theological thing. But the mystery of Christ is, uh, particularly in the context of Pauline epistles, is that God is saving both Jews and Gentiles and making of them one new man in Christ. That He's saving souls. Paul says, I'm just going around telling folks that Christ is saving souls. And he says, it's my desire that I make that manifest, that I disclose that to people. What does an open door look like? It, it, it's an open door not for our goal, not even for our good. An open door is an open door for the gospel. And then finally, notice the compelling of our open doors. He says this, just a little statement, almost like a throwaway. But you know, there ain't no throwaways in this King James Bible. Everything's there on purpose. And Paul just, he ends it by saying this, as I ought to speak. Now, there's two ways we could take that, isn't it? 
We could take it in the sense of a compulsory statement about his responsibility. And that's true, right? It could be he's saying, pray that God would do this because I ought to be speaking this. It is my responsibility to do this. I would say this, we have a compulsion. We have a responsibility to walk through open doors. But you know, there's another way we could take it. We could understand that what Paul's saying is this. I want to make sure that when I speak these things, I speak them in the manner that I ought to, as I ought to speak. Either way, you know what he recognizes? That this open door before him presents not just a, a, a great opportunity, but a great responsibility. And it is his job to go through the door that God has opened, that God has truly opened. Again, that don't mean kicking open a door and then slapping God's name on top of it. But it means truly seeking and asking God to show you His will, His heart, His desire, His plan for your life. But once He's done that, it's to say, all right, Lord, You've done Your part. You've opened that door. I'll go through it for Your glory. Let's bow together tonight as musician comes to play. And I just want to give you an opportunity to speak to the Lord tonight. I, I know the hour's a little bit late. We got started a little late, took some time, and, and you were patient as I preached. But I want you to have an opportunity to, to bow your head and your heart and your knee before the Lord. If God's spoken to your heart about something, why don't you come and bow your heart before Him? You say, well, preacher, could God use me? Sure He could. Sure He could. He might not do it in the way He does other people. But you say, preacher, how can I see God make use of my life? It's very simple. When He opens a door and you know it's Him opened it, walk through it and let Him do with that what He will for His glory. Father, bless this invitation. May it magnify the Lord Jesus. We ask it in His name.